welcome everyone to this week's Citizens Climate Lobby training program. It's a weekly webinar of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters like you and I with access to in-depth training opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight we're going to dive into the Prove It Act and Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanisms. Join CCL's research team to dive into an understanding of what Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanisms, otherwise known as CBAMs, are, as well as the importance of accurate carbon content calculations and what the Prove It Act would do to help the U.S. get a firmer understanding of our domestic industry's lower carbon content advantage. And I'd love to introduce our two esteemed speakers tonight. Dana Nucitelli and Rick Knight are CCL's research coordinators. Dana is an environmental scientist and climate journalist with a master's degree in physics. Rick's background is chemical engineering. He spent 41 years working, conducting, and managing energy at the Gas Technology Institute and has been a CCL volunteer in the Chicago area since 2012 and joined CCL staff in 2018. So we've got some real expertise tonight and a powerful one-two punch. And if we've done our job well tonight, you are going to walk away with the following three learning goals that we are going to pose as questions we're going to be exploring tonight. Number one, you'll understand a bit more about what is a carbon border adjustment mechanism or CBAM. Number two, you'll understand what's happening with CBAMs in our country, the United States, as well as around the world. And number three, you'll understand what role the Prove It Act plays in developing or leading and laying the groundwork for CBAMs here domestically. So without further ado, thank you all so much for being here. I'll just put a link one last time for those that have tuned in to get a link to the slides where you're welcome to follow along with Dana and Rick. And with that, I'll pass it to you, Dana. All right, thanks, Brett. So I'm gonna start off by framing the problem that we're trying to address with carbon border adjustment mechanisms, CBAMs. So the issue is if we get a carbon price in the United States, which of course we are trying very hard to do, then that would raise the costs of various products that we make in our country uh, because it's gonna raise the costs of fossil fuels and fossil fuels are inputs for a lot of different stuff that we make. And if we don't have a carbon price in place, uh, we still we would like to still implement the CBAM because uh, we still have regulations. Uh, there's some climate regulations. There are some other air pollution regulations that also result in reducing carbon emissions as we reduce other air pollutant emissions. And so getting those clean products domestically but through our domestic industries, that still adds costs. And so as a result of these regulations that we have in place, and if we can get a carbon uh, price in place, that will help uh, also make US industries even cleaner, but they already are relatively clean, relatively low carbon. But as a result of those, the costs imposed in meeting those regulations, that makes our products more expensive than a lot of dirtier foreign competitors. And so as a result, uh, those dirtier, higher carbon foreign competitors often have an economic advantage because their stuff is cheaper. And so people tend to buy it more frequently. And so that puts our domestic in industries at a disadvantage. And then when we're buying those higher carbon, dirtier products from abroad, that's causing what we call carbon leakage, where instead of reducing overall greenhouse gas emissions, we're just kind of farming out our emissions to these other countries. And so the carbon emissions are leaking out to other countries. And so we kind of get credit for 
maybe reducing our domestic emissions, but we're buying stuff from other countries and the overall emissions aren't going down. And so a CBAM is also intended to reduce that carbon leakage. And we'll talk about how it does that. Uh, one specific example I like to give is steel. And so there are basically two main ways that steel is made. Uh, one way is from taking scrap and essentially recyc recycling it using an electric arc furnace. Uh, that's how about 30% of steel is made globally, but in the US, it's how about two thirds of our steel is made. And using or making steel through this process is much lower carbon uh, than using coal or some other fossil fuel to get the high temperatures need to melt iron ore. If you're using these electric arc furnaces to recycle scrap steel because electricity tends to be lower carbon, that tends to be a lower carbon way of making steel. And so as a result, because we use these electric arc furnaces so much, US made steel is generally significantly lower carbon than steel made in most other countries. And so we want to incentivize the purchasing of this lower carbon domestic steel. Uh, there's a caveat here that uh, it's not like we can make all steel from this recycling electric arc furnace method because there's only so much scrap steel available. Like there's, you know, we do this with, for example, old cars, we'll recycle those in this in scrap steel, but there's a limited amount available, which is why it's only 30% of global steel is made this way. So it's not like we could do this uh, universally. But in the future, there are ways that we can replace these fossil fuels, hopefully in the making of steel, doing things like uh, using green hydrogen. And then if uh, companies do that, again, we want to incentivize the purchasing of that cleaner steel using green hydrogen through a CBAM. So that's the idea is that you're putting a price on the higher carbon stuff, so it incentivizes the purchasing of the lower carbon stuff. And in general, uh, the US has a lot of low carbon um, products. Uh, on average, our products are about 40% less intensive than the global average across a whole bunch of different uh, manufacturing sectors. But right now we're importing 75% of our stuff from less carbon efficient countries. And so we're making low carbon stuff but we're not buying that low carbon stuff so much. We're buying the cheaper high carbon stuff from other countries. And so the idea is you implement a CBAM to uh, address that. And so that will allow US industries to leverage their low carbon advantage and then outcompete the foreign production because you're putting a price on the extra carbon of the foreign competition. And so that makes uh, the US lower carbon materials more cost competitive and makes it a greater incentive for everybody to buy those. Um, so there is a really nice report called America's Carbon Advantage by the Climate Leadership Council, written by these two on the right, Katrina Rourke and Greg Burleson. And so they have this nice quote in there that an ambitious U.S. policy to price emissions, including a CBAM, will turn the existing U.S. carbon advantage into a competitive advantage. Because again, you're, you're basically, by putting this price on this uh, carbon coming across the board, you're incentivizing uh, people to buy this domestic low carbon stuff. Uh, no other policy exists to unilaterally improve the competitive position of US firms, reduce domestic emissions, and encourage global emissions reductions. Uh, so this is a nice chart from the report. Across the top, there's a list of countries. Across the left side is a list of different industries. And so if the box is in red, that means that industry from that country is higher carbon. And if the number is greater than one and in red, uh, that industry from that country is higher carbon than the US equivalent. If it's blue, it's lower carbon. If it's white and says one, then it's equal carbon. 
Uh, so you can see, especially uh, from China and India and Russia, almost all the numbers are red because the industries in those countries on average have a higher carbon intensity than the US equivalents. Uh, you can see across the bottom, economy-wide comparing each country to the United States, almost all of them are red, except for uh, the European Union is slightly lower carbon, but everybody else on average, uh, their economies are generally higher carbon than the United States. And so this is a good illustration of why they call it America's carbon advantage, because we have all these low carbon intensity industries that on average are lower carbon than most of our foreign competition. So if we were to implement a CBAM, that would create this advantage for our domestic low carbon industries as compared to the foreign higher carbon industry uh, competitors, especially uh, from countries like China and Russia and India that we currently buy a lot of stuff from. Uh, so you might ask why are US industries low carbon, especially given that we don't yet have a carbon price in place. Uh, but what we do have are strong environmental regulations, some climate regulations, some other air pollution regulations, as I mentioned, that uh, as industries meet these regulations, do things to make their processes more efficient, that tends to also reduce their carbon emissions and carbon intensity. Uh, we also have uh, good, efficient, advanced manufacturing processes uh, that since we can't necessarily compete with cheaper products from abroad, we try to make, uh, make up for that advantage by making good products, high quality products. Uh, making them very efficiently. And so as a result of that, that tends to result in relatively low carbon intensity of products. And we also have a relatively clean power sector. Uh, and it's becoming cleaner and cleaner, especially as we deploy more and more solar and wind energy and uh, manufacturing and other industries, they rely on electricity. And so the cleaner your electricity is, the cleaner your um, products and manufacturing tend to be. And so all those things tend to result in lower carbon products uh, made in the United States, but they also tend to add costs uh, compared to our competition in other countries that doesn't have those same strict regulations or that advanced manufacturing or that clean power generation. And so the idea of a CBAM is we want to level the playing field so that we're not creating a disadvantage for our domestic industries that have done these things to make their clean, efficient processes also that have also resulted in relatively low carbon processes. So um, ideally, you can do a CBAM with a carbon price or without a carbon price. Ideally, you would do it with a domestic carbon price. Um, otherwise, there's a challenge that uh, the World Trade Organization might view it as uh, against the rules because it's basically you're penalizing other countries for their carbon content and their materials, but not penalizing your country's uh, domestic manufacturing when they have carbon in their materials. And so uh, the WTO tends to not like that. Um, that being said, uh, the US, when we disagree with the WTO, we don't always go along with the WTO. Like we have disagreed and ignored the WTO in the past. Uh, also, there are like climate and environmental justifications uh, for disagreeing. Like we can say, hey, climate change is so important that we think uh, CBAM uh, is a good way to address that. And therefore, it's worthwhile, even though you might disagree and think that you're basically putting a tariff on other countries, we're doing it to tackle the climate crisis and justify it that way. So you can do it even if you don't have a carbon price, but it's better to do it with a carbon price. Uh, also, lacking a domestic carbon price makes a CBAM a little more complex. Uh, so, for example, 
if you're putting a price on the carbon content, the extra carbon content of a product being imported, like what is the price that you're going to put on that extra carbon? You have to decide what the carbon price is going to be if you don't have an equivalent carbon price already in place in your country. So I'll talk in the next slide about a couple of different ways to do that, but it makes it a little more complicated figuring out what that carbon price should be if you don't have a carbon price. Uh, the European Union is in the process of implementing a CBAM, as uh, Rick will talk about. They count, they do have a carbon price in place, so they take into account their carbon price relative to other countries' carbon prices or lack thereof, and they also take into account, or they're in the process of taking into account the carbon content of their industry's products compared to foreign products. So there have been a couple of bills that were introduced uh, to implement a CBAM in the last session of Congress. One of them was introduced by Senator Whitehouse called the Clean Competition Act. So it would have put a fee on the carbon content of a material above the baseline value, which this baseline, you basically look at uh, US industries on, on average, how much carbon content their project, their products have, and that is your baseline average. Um, so figuring that out is what the Prove It Act is going to do, which Rick will talk more about. And so when you import a product, say if you're importing Chinese steel, and let's say U.S. steel has a carbon content of 1 and Chinese steel has a carbon content of 1.5, then you put the carbon content on just that extra 0.5 uh, of carbon. I put the carbon price on the extra 0.5 of carbon content, not on all the carbon, just on the extra above uh, the U.S. average. Uh, in White House's bill, he would have put a $55 per ton carbon price, rising at 5% per year, uh, which is basically the U.S. estimate, uh, the federal government estimate of the social cost of carbon. Oh, that's complicated a little bit because we are, the government is in the process of revising our social cost of carbon estimate to something closer to $200 per ton. Uh, so if Senator White House reintroduces his bill, he'll have to decide if he wants to keep the $55 per ton or if he wants to do uh, whatever the new social cost of carbon is. So again, that gets complicated because we don't have a price on carbon. Uh, Senator Whitehouse's bill would have applied uh, this uh, CBAM to domestic industries. And so if you're a steel maker and your steel uh, carbon content is above the national average, you would have to pay for that extra carbon content. Uh, so it's basically creating a bit of a carbon price domestically. Uh, and he would have had the baseline decrease by 2.5 to 5% per year. So every um, company in the industry would have to decrease their carbon intensity of their products or else they would have to pay uh, the seed band price on their extra carbon content if they're not keeping up with the decreasing baseline. So basically it's creating a domestic carbon price and trying to incentivize industries to reduce their emissions eventually down to zero. Then Senator Coons introduced uh, one called the Fair Transition and Competition Act. Uh, which very similar would have put a, a fee on the carbon content of the product above that baseline, again, calculating the baseline, and then just putting the carbon content on that extra carbon or the carbon price on the extra carbon content. Uh, his bill would have estimated uh, the regulatory compliance costs that U.S. industries are have to pay in order to reduce their emissions to meet our regulations and set the carbon price that way. Uh, which is kind of a complicated way, like you have to have some federal agency do these calculations and say, how much does it cost this industry to meet these regulations to reduce their emissions and then set the price that way? So it's a kind of a fair way to do it, because since we don't have a carbon price, like that is the cost that the uh, company is paying to reduce their emissions and get low carbon content. But it seems like a really difficult thing to calculate, but that's, that's the way his bill approached putting the price on carbon. And Coons's bill did not apply to domestic industries. 
uh, just would apply to imports coming across the border. Uh, there are a couple of Republicans working on CBAN bills right now for introduction in the current session of Congress, hopefully, but we haven't uh, seen the details of those yet, so we're still waiting on uh, seeing what they're going to plan to do for their CBAN bills. So I'm going to stop there and hand it over to Rick, and he's going to go through the details and mechanics of exactly how a CBAM works. Okay, thanks, Dana, and thanks, Brett. So let me pick this up by uh, diving into how a carbon border adjustment mechanism actually works. So let's say we have uh, two countries, the USA and we'll call it Carbonia with a border between them. Now let's say an American company like uh, say a car company or any other manufacturer needs to have their purchasing department buy some steel plate for the company. Ordinarily, they would uh, buy the product from the American steel mill and pay the going price. But if there are government policies uh, that force the American industry to be cleaner, such as regulations or a carbon fee, like Dana talked about, uh, that steel mill then incurs some additional costs to satisfy those regulations. And so they have to raise their price to stay profitable. Now, the problem for the American Steel Company is that a steel mill in Carbonia has fewer regulations and no carbon price. So their steel costs less to produce. And so Mr. American Steel Buyer here has uh, can import the Carbonian steel at a cheaper price. So to correct that, the US puts a CBAM in place so that the importer, the American company, will have to pay a CBAM charge on the imported steel. Okay, so their total cost would be about the same as they would pay for the American steel. So that levels the playing field with regard to Carbonian steel. Now, uh, so that solves the buyer's problem, but what if the US steel mill also depends on exports to other countries? Back in Carbonia, where their emissions policies are weak or non-existent, Carbonian companies can still buy their own domestic steel at a lower price than the American steel company can sell it to them because of the added cost of uh, the emissions policies here in the US. So uh, th that presents a temptation for the American steel company to move their mill to Carbonia where their operating costs will be lower. So to prevent that, if the American Steel Company wants to export steel to Carbonia, the CBAM should grant them a border tax refund so they can lower their export price and still make a profit because they're getting money from the CBAM fund. So that's the basic idea. And I hope that uh, made it a little bit clearer how this works, because it is complicated. And it would apply not only to steel, but a bunch of other carbon intensive or emissions intensive products like paper and aluminum and cement and certain chemicals like ammonia. And a couple of years ago, the European Union, uh, as Dana talked about, they started developing their own CBAM because they have relatively efficient industry, as his chart showed as well as carbon pricing, and they want to keep their industries competitive. So, so this is not just theoretical, and it's not just the EU. CBAMs are on the way, 
the 27 countries of the EU reached agreement and launched, launched their CBAM this year, starting with data collection. And it will go fully into effect actually charging those tariffs in 2026. And it will cover the list of products that you see here. Uh, iron and steel, cement, aluminum, fertilizer, hydrogen, and electricity, because they do uh, uh, market electricity across borders. And so countries like uh, that have a lot of hydropower and under other countries that have coal power, there's a big difference in the carbon footprint between those countries within the EU. And importantly, it will count both the embedded emissions, meaning how much CO2 was emitted during manufacture, and any carbon price that was paid in the exporting country. Now, Japan is also implementing a kind of CBAM, but it applies only to fossil fuels, of which Japan exports just a little, just some refined petroleum products, and not manufactured products like steel. The UK has just completed consultation, that's the word they use in Parliament, on a CBAM, which would be similar in design to the EU version, uh, as of today, it's not yet clear how and when they're going to implement it, but it's very likely they will move ahead. And the UK is a significant trading partner for the US. Another country that's considering a CBAM is Canada, which already has carbon pricing. So they have a sound basis to implement a system similar to the EU CBAM, but that it's not been decided yet, but that is our biggest trading partner. It is worth noting uh, that China, they, they don't have a CBAM, but they are expanding their internal carbon trading system to cover more goods and higher prices so that they will be less affected by the EU CBAM. They're complaining about it bitterly, but they are changing their carbon pricing to, to, to respond. This is exactly in line with what CCL has been preaching for years, that when one country imposes a border adjustment, their trading partners will be encouraged to accelerate their climate policy. So now we have a real world example of that, thanks to the EU. Okay, where's my next slide? There we go. So that brings us to what is afoot in the US Congress. Senators Chris Coons and Kevin Kramer have introduced the Prove It Act. That bill, if passed, would develop a database of emissions intensities, which is really needed to move ahead. Now, note that the EU is doing exactly that during the first three years of their CBAM program. And Dana already gave us some of the political background that has led to uh, bipartisan support for CBAM, mainly the finding that the carbon intensity of US industry is lower than in the many competing countries. And CCL supports this bill. So there are eight co-sponsors divided equally between Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. And it's the first step in getting a CBAM in place by establishing a database that's needed to figure out what the border adjustments should be. Now, this bill directs the Department of Energy to estimate the average greenhouse gas emissions intensity of various products made in the US and in other countries that uh, department, the DOE, is required to publish the results of that study two years after enactment and then update the results at five-year intervals after that. 
<clears throat> excuse me. So this is step one. Step two will be to set the price. In other words, how much does the importer of a product, say China, have to pay per ton of the emissions that occurred in the course of making the product? Or more specifically, in the language in the bill, the extraction, production, processing, manufacture, and assembly of the product. So to determine the excess border price of the product, choose a baseline carbon price and proportion it to the difference in product. And Dana already explained this uh, difference in emissions intensity. So for example, let's say the baseline price is $50 a ton of CO2 equivalent. And the embedded emissions in a ton of American steel comes to one ton per ton of steel. And the emissions for a ton of, let's say, Korean steel is two tons, which is about what the difference is right now. So then each ton of Korean steel would be hit with a border tariff of $50 to account for that extra ton. I know I'm just repeating what Dana said, but it's, it's good to uh, hear it again to understand it. So this is how the CBAM would proportion the cost to the difference in product emission intensities. Now, another issue is how, is how to coordinate these border prices with those of other CBAM implementing countries. If the baseline quarter, uh, carbon prices are substantially different between say the US and the EU, there would be an incentive to negotiate some bilateral agreements between the countries to help simplify the execution of their respective systems. And Dana already showed a couple of bills from the last Congress, the Clean Competition Act and the Fair Transition and Competition Act that specified a baseline carbon price, $55 for the CCA and uh, the Fair Act that would be this calculated um, environmental cost based on the total cost of climate regulations imposed on each covered sector. And that is complicated. So, but assuming we get to that point, step three would be to pass an actual CBAM bill, now hopefully bipartisan legislation that would implement the step two border price and excess carbon intensity of imports and also implement a corresponding border refund on low carbon exports. It's possible that steps two and three could be combined into a single bill. That would be awesome. Uh, so we just have to watch how this develops in Congress. Now, I know what you're thinking. Come on, Rick, show me the list of goods that would be subject to a CBAM border tariff. Well, fear not. The next time you talk to a lawmaker or a potential endorser who really wants to know which companies are going to be affected in their district or state, uh, here you go. A table with a lot of words and dots, but let's break it down a bit. It shows 28 categories of products that would be covered under either the Prove It Act, the EU CBAM, the Clean Competition Act, or the 2021 Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act and in the last Congress. So without trying to parse out everything here, you can see, first of all, that the Prove It Act covers the most things. The EU CBAM, on the other hand, only includes uh, seven out of those 28 categories, while the CCA covered 14 and the EICDA specified 16 categories. So here I just want to highlight uh, some specific things where here where fossil fuels are covered. Uh, not at all in the EU version, 
But in all the US legislative proposals, uh, fossil fuels are addressed in the CBAM proposals. Uh, curiously, the Prove It Act doesn't include coal, but I'm guessing that may have just been an oversight in drafting. Uh, some non-fossil fuels uh, or energy products like biofuels, electricity in the case of the EU, hydrogen, and uranium are on the list, uh, uranium in the case of the Prove It Act. Half of the remaining items are commodities. In other words, goods that are not normally bought by ordinary consumers, but by businesses to make other products like steel, aluminum, cement, and so on. And the rest are certain manufactured goods at various points in the supply chain, notably including things like lithium batteries and solar panels and wind turbines under the Prove It Act. So as Dana said, there are questions as to whether a CBAM would be in compliance with uh, World Trade Organization rules if there is no internal carbon price. And this is why the carbon pricing bills uh, like the Energy Innovation Act were designed where the CBAM is one of three complementary components. And the three are the carbon fee or carbon polluter fee, the carbon dividend or cashback, and the carbon border adjustment mechanism or CBAM. Those are what constitute uh, the three-legged stool that drives investment away from fossil energy and into clean alternatives. But the question could be raised as to why the CBAM is a necessary part. Why is it important to link CBAM to these other components? And, and well, the truth is that the carbon fee and dividend and the CBAM, they do belong together. And Dana went into this a bit. Those of us who have lobbied House members from either party may recall being asked, how is this carbon fee and dividend going to affect businesses in my district or my state, since those companies don't get any of those dividends? Now, one answer we've tried is to say that their customers, the businesses' customers, will have more money to spend, and in that way, they will benefit. But that argument is only really persuasive for businesses that deal directly with consumers like retail stores or repair shops, restaurants, and businesses like that. But for more upstream industries like steel mills or cement makers, which sometimes are major employers in a district, it's a harder sell to those lawmakers. And we've had this experience directly in, in uh, lobbying discussions. So the CBAM provides a different angle in that it will relieve the price imbalance that those competitors might experience due to lower prices from foreign competitors. Depending on the industry in question, this could be quite important. From an emissions standpoint, uh, remember, as, as Dana explained, that climate change is a global problem. Some may argue that it's just a carbon fee that cuts US emissions, which is true, but while the CBAM doesn't necessarily cut our emissions here at home, it prevents polluting companies from simply moving overseas, as I outlined in my diagram before. And in that way, it does serve to reduce emissions globally. And a third potential question is the one Dana already talked about, then why just not just do a CBAM without the politically fraught carbon tax? 
And the reason is because a so-called naked CBAM will undoubtedly bring World Trade Organization challenges, which while we may not always pay that much attention to, it's really better to not have to deal with that to begin with. And, and the carbon fee makes the CBAM compliant with WTO rules, which is which is why it was included in in uh, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, uh, why it was structured that way, and also why uh, Senator Whitehouse's bill was structured in such a way to make it WTO compliant. So while we're talking about the carbon price, I think, um, how much time do you think I have, uh, Brett? Another five minutes, maybe? Oh, you're great. Yeah, keep going. Okay, <clears throat> let me take a quick drink here. While we're talking about carbon pricing, I'm going to show you how the flow of goods and money in our energy economy points the way to carbon pricing. Like the old expression goes, follow the money. So here we have two components of that economy here. At the top are the fossil fuel suppliers and below them are their customers, utilities, refineries, manufacturers who buy the coal, oil, and gas to make the energy their businesses need. And those businesses in turn make all kinds of products that they sell to us, American households. They sell us electricity, fuel for our cars or to heat our homes and thousands of products from underwear to smartphones and everything in between. But there's this little problem, the carbon dioxide, which is messing up the climate and costing us a lot while it still gets dumped into the air for free. And those costs, well, wait till the end of this year when they add up the cost of climate related um, natural events. So one logical remedy is for the government to start charging a fee for every ton of carbon before it even gets burned. Most of you are already familiar with this argument. And when they do that, those fossil fuel suppliers will pass those costs on at least partially to their customers in the form of higher prices. And naturally their customers, those factories and plants will pass some of those costs on to their customers, me and you. And human behavior being what it is, everyone down the chain will grumble and complain, but look for ways to reduce those costs. If the carbon fee goes up some more, then more costs get passed on down. And again, more yet. Eventually, um, those fossil fuel suppliers, well, or those businesses that are, are getting the fossil fuels and buying them, and paying higher prices for them, we'll start switching to clean energy. Just if only to escape the rising price of coal, oil, and gas because of the carbon fee. And that will start to shrink those CO2 emissions from burning fossil fuels. So as the carbon fee goes up, those emissions will go down, but households are still saddled with higher prices while businesses change their methods and infrastructure. And most analysts will proclaim as they already have, the carbon taxes are regressive. How do we fix that? Well, you all know as well as I do. Uh, I think you may have already spotted the missing arrow and here it is. So the money should be divided up among American households as carbon dividends or, or carbon cash back, if you prefer. 
Note that the word dividend actually means something that is divided. But whatever you call it, the beauty of that is that it counteracts the financial burden of rising energy prices for American households. Now, this is when some people might be scratching their heads thinking, well, how does it lower emissions if you're just sending the carbon money right back to the public? How does that change their behavior? And the answer is right here on the left side of the diagram. It's that the carbon fee reduces emissions because it motivates businesses to move away from fossil fuels. It also motivates consumers to use less energy because the, the energy products that are fossil rich are still costing more. But the impact is mostly on businesses because they don't want to lose their customer based higher prices. And it motivates investors to shift away from fossil fuels because they know they will become increasingly non-competitive. And multiple studies have shown conclusively that the dividend component ensures that low and middle income Americans will end up with more money in their pockets than they need to cover those extra energy costs. And as we've discussed, the CBAM makes the whole thing work by ensuring that companies don't simply move their fossil fuel operations to countries that have lax emission policies. That's why it's the third uh, leg on the stool. So in conclusion, the CBAM is an essential component of a strong carbon pricing policy. The CBAM and the carbon fee work hand in hand to reduce emissions both at home and abroad. And today's politics have opened the door a little crack to CBAM legislation as a gateway to future carbon pricing, if we play our cards right. Yes, it's a slower process than we would like, but as Otto von Bismarck said more than a century ago, politics is the art of the possible, the attainable. And that's part of, uh, that's, that's why the CCL plays its part in the ecosystem of uh, climate action that we've chosen to occupy, to make those slow but permanent and, and uh, durable changes take place. So let's get to work and it's 22. Thanks for your attention. And you can start asking all those questions you've been trying to remember while we were throwing all these charts and diagrams at you. Here, here, Rick. Please join me, everyone, in giving a virtual round of applause to our wonderful presenters. What we hope that you do after tonight is continue to share the good word about this for anyone that couldn't make it live. It will be live as of tomorrow on our YouTube channel as well as CCL community. And so this has been a wonderful chance for us all to get a refresher on the basics of carbon border adjustments as well as the update and how the Prove It Act helps lay the groundwork for making that next step. So I hope that you found tonight's training as useful and engaging as I have. And I would like to invite all of us as we unmute here and close tonight to thank Dana and Rick for your time and investment. Have a wonderful night, everyone. Stay safe out there and keep up the great work. And thank you, Brett. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. 
We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.